0: Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday together with your adopted sons and daughters under the means of grace to open up the scriptures, to pray for one another, and to enjoy fellowship in the Holy Spirit because we're bonded together by your work of grace that made us one family. And we pray for the scattered flock around the world that listens to these classes because they're hungry for the word, pray that you would bless them, help them find the remnant that they might gather together with them, and may you work graciously in their lives as well. And we commit this morning to you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are in a very dense, you can tell how dense it is by how many colors are on my, on my sheet here. And let me read just verses 1 through 4, we did 1 and 2 last week. On 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11 1 through 4 I wish that you would bear with me a little in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, Your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Now notice the play on words. Um, he's asking them to bear with Paul, who's the one who originally preached the gospel to them. And he shouldn't have to ask for that, but he does. But then ironically, they're willing to bear with somebody who comes with a different gospel, a different spirit, a different Jesus. Now, yeah, they're very open-minded. It kind of reminds me of people in this day and age. They're they're very open-minded. Now, that's a serious problem here. Now, there's a, the concept that we talked about last week of the betrothal and the father. We saw last week that in 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul said he was as a father to them in the sense that he was the one who brought the gospel to them and he felt responsible for their spiritual well-being. All right? And so he makes an analogy with, with betrothal practices. If a father would pledge his daughter to someone to be eventually his wife in a betrothal, the daughter, as we talked about last week, was guarded by that father. And it was his responsibility to keep her safe, keep her from any other men, so that when the marriage is consummated, he presents a virgin to the husband. So by analogy... Paul had the same relationship to the Corinthian church. He was going to make sure they weren't sullied by the serpent and therefore not the proper bride to be devoted to Christ. So let's go to verse 3 now. We introduced this last week. For I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve... By his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now, let's talk about some of the words in here, and then we'll go back into Genesis and read the account there and just see how the seduction works, what this is all about. Okay? It says here, the servant deceived Eve. That word, ex-apatao, is used in the Septuagint of 1 Kings 22:20. 20. Who wants to look up 1 Kings 22:20? Go ahead, Robert. And it's used in its simple form in Genesis 3:13 Septuagint. Apatao. Sometimes in the Greek, they'll add a prefix to something to just intensify it a little bit. So, out of X is out of. Okay. 1 Kings 22:20. 20.
1: And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, and another spoke in that manner.
0: Keep going, Then I'm a sorry. spirit
1: came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him in that way, so he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Okay. the Lord said, yep.
0: That's it, the lying spirit, the deceiving spirit. And then it's also used, we won't go here, but Judges 14, 15, to entice or deceive or to lead astray or what have you. And we're going to all turn to Genesis here in a moment, so I'll leave that one, but that's also where a form of this word is used. And he did so by craftiness, which means treachery, and the focus of Satan's deceptive attack is on the mind that your minds will be led astray. okay? So Satan is attacking us in the area of what we believe and think and understand about the gospel and therefore to try to lead us astray. And we'll look in Genesis to see how he did that with Eve. Now led astray means to corrupt, or it means seduction from what is right and pure, according to Dr. Martin in the Word Commentary series, to corrupt or to seduce away. And simplicity means sincerity as shown by singleness of purpose. Simplicity here doesn't mean easy. (laughs) Yeah, when we say, oh, that's simple, We'd say that means, oh, that's easy, it's not very difficult. That's not at all what it means here, all right? It means singleness of purpose. Simple is the word from the Greek, but it would be what's simple is that it would be without ulterior motive. It is what it appears to be, not sullied by ulterior motives. Singleness of purpose or even sincerity would be reasonable, yeah, or purity. Well, then that's, that's the next word, purity, and that word means without moral defect, without moral defect. So, the serpent deceived Eve, and the way that sin came into the human race was Satan, in the form of the serpent, convinced Eve that she didn't really have to listen to what God said. That's where the attack always is going to be launched is going to be launched against what God has said. Now, let's go and turn to that, Genesis 3, and see where this analogy comes from and see how it is still the issue today. In fact, I think it's more of an issue today than it's been in my lifetime. And I mean that because this postmodern attack against the ability of written words to be meaningful cross-culturally is an attack of the serpent against the word of God having any bearing upon us in this day and age. Okay, Genesis three let's just read the whole narrative verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made, and he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So we have Satan here questioning the authority of God's word. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden you may eat. That much is true. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it or touch it lest you die. Now there she departed from what God said. She added, Touch it. So, that wasn't correct. So she's changing it. Also, In the first verse, it's the Lord God, but here it's just God. And the servant said to the woman, You shall surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the tree, that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and it was desirable to make one wise, she took from his fruit and ate and gave to her husband and he ate. Now, later... In verse 13, we get our word for seduction that Paul uses. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me or seduced me. Same word from the Septuagint there is found in our passage. Now, the fact is that God made a very clear, well-defined law okay that that explained right and wrong and what the boundaries are, okay, so God used words, he communicated in words, and these words verbally drew out a clear boundary of truth and air, right and wrong. You shall not eat if you do, you 'll die that 's all there was to it it 's not very complicated, all right but once the dialogue began, then the problem started. They, started. they started a dialogue questioning whether what this is said is actually real. And I think that that's the problem we have in this so-called postmodern era. Everything is a dialogue. Right? Everything's a dialogue. And so whatever has been said is up for... Grabs. And we, we can just interpret and discuss and what have you until we get somewhere we want to be and we escape from God's boundaries because we don't like to be bounded. We don't like to be hemmed in. So we have a dialogue going. Now, the reason we need logic and reason and rationality is that the means by which what is said by God is applied to our lives is through logic. Now, we're studying logic on Thursday nights, and some people have said, well, I I just guess I'm not logical. (laughs) But it's not just because you've studied formal logic, but the fact is that's how you apply it. You have to be able to distinguish categories. The the basic building block of logic is the law of non-contradiction. A is not non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. All right? And what that means is eating is not the same as not eating, okay? Dying is not the same as being alive. So God's words tie us to His truth through logic whereby we can have valid implications and applications of Scripture. And we can't escape that. We can try, but it will just harm us. But the
2: Scripture says, like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct fit only to be slaughtered. So that what differs between us and the animals, well, basically you have either I can act on feelings, intuition, instinct, which is what the animals do, or I can act on reason, logic, and the gift that God's given me there. Those are the two options. Uh-huh. If you act as an animal, you'll follow that into, into destruction. That's what Scripture
0: says. Exactly. Now... When we try to attack what I'm talking about, Schaefer called it escape from reason. When you escape from reason, you end up like the unreasoning beast. Reason is God's gift to humans who are created in His image that we might survive. Reason is the only possible way we can survive. Because we're not beasts. We're different. That's not how God made us. And you can just see that in just about any realm of life. You don't have to send a dog to school to learn how to raise pups. Or you don't have childbirth classes for dogs. Okay? But for humans, you have to even teach them how to raise kids. You have to go to school for just about everything we do. We have to use reason to know what's food and what's non-food. We have to use reason to be able to survive in the environment we're living in, especially if we're in Minnesota. Maybe if you are on a tropical island, you wouldn't need as much reason, but we have to figure out things like building a shelter that has insulation, how to heat it in the winter, how to have water when the lake's frozen over, how to do this, how to do that, how to do everything, all of which are, it's necessary to use reason. So when the serpent would seduce us away from the gospel, he's going to seduce us from the way what God said logically applies to our lives and puts us within boundaries. That's what he's going to attack. He's going to attack the boundaries. And there's a lot of ways to do it. One of them, what Keith mentioned, is to get us to go by our feelings rather than by reason. Now, it doesn't mean that feelings aren't part of human life. Yes, they are. We have all kinds of feelings and sentiments and what have you. And I've had people say, well, you're just in the logic and reason. You don't understand feelings. And you don't, you're not, you don't know about experience. Well, it's just, that's a fallacious argument because we all have feelings. We all have experiences. We all have things in common that are like that. That's not the issue. is isn't how many feelings or emotions or experiences you have. The issue is what guides us to the gospel, what guides our beliefs, what guides our obedience to God. And when we transfer the religious things into the realm of the sentiment and the feelings and experiences, we are being seduced away from the gospel. Absolutely. and It will happen every single time. And I think that's probably what was happening in Corinth, in my opinion. We'll get to that in the next verse, but it doesn't specify what other gospel they were actually preaching. So we have to kind of guess at what was going on. But it seems from the context of the two Corinthian epistles that we have, that if you look at them, they were being seduced by the silver-tongued orators that would come into town that had a better appearance than Paul. Remember that? Because they were saying he's not very impressive. And his speech is contemptible. Now, do you see the seduction going on there? Because how somebody looks and how eloquent they are isn't what binds us to the gospel. I would rather have somebody with marbles in their mouth that was very homely tell me the true gospel than have the most slick, eloquent eloquent. Um, silver-tongued orator tickling my fancy and making me feel good with something that's not the gospel. Yes?
2: I mean, if you just take the analogy of the uh, seduction in general, we're married because of reason. We make a rational choice, a reasonable choice, and come into a binding agreement before God and society. Mm Mm-hmm. Presumably we get married because there were feelings and that there, there is a feeling part of it. But once you make that decision, afterwards, whether I feel married or not, really has nothing to do with it. And frankly, whether I feel married or not is where the seduction comes into because when you're seduced away into adultery, it's because your feelings take precedent over the reason that you've already made a decision. It's the same concept. Yeah, it is.
0: That's, that's a very good analogy. And frankly, that's the one Paul's using here. There were some Jewish, was that, not scripture. Where was that? In Enoch? Yeah, Enoch. that had a sexual interpretation of Genesis 3. Okay, so in Jewish discussion there was that sort of thinking so it really is the analogy Paul's using here when he's talking about a marriage yeah and what Keith says is true absolutely people going by their feelings has destroyed more marriages than you can imagine okay and being seduced by by someone who has seemingly something to offer that doesn't look so good with the, whoever you married, whether you're male or female, is what destroys the marriage. Okay? Now, we make a commitment, and when you're in a committed relationship with the person that God joined you together with, and that means you're responsible together to fight the battles of life. And it's not easy having little kids in the house, it's a huge, stressful thing. You don't have your life, you feel like. You feel like you, especially for women, it's very, very difficult. And and it's not easy trying to make a living and trying to keep a roof over somebody's head, and it's not easy dealing with all the problems when you come home. And so what happens is people go out into the workplace, wherever they are, here's somebody that doesn't have all of that kind of stuff going on. And they seem like they understand you, and they seem more interesting. Seduction. Well, that's what happens with the spirits. The spirits are out there seducing Christians away from the gospel. The,
2: the genesis account that you read it's yahweh god at the beginning so there's yahweh the covenant keeping god yep. so the god that eve and adam are married to and it degenerates then into just almighty god without the concept of covenant as she speaks to the serpent and the serpent says the almighty god just as a non-relational and non-covenant so it, That same concept is very prevalent in the whole seduction narrative in Genesis.
0: Yeah, that's. I saw that when I was expounding that. One of the commentators pointed that out that that moving away from the Yahweh to a more generic name for God was part of the seduction, because the Yahweh spoke of the covenant. That's that's a correct interpretation. So there were several things going on in that dialogue that was seducing Eve away from the relationship to God. Now. Patrick, later, I want to. I want you to ask the question you asked me Thursday night. Okay.
1: About uh, what is forbidden?
0: Yeah. Why? Why? Yeah. Because Casey was brought up the thing because she has some students are saying, well, why? Why can't we do this? Because they're they're wanting to do the emergent type stuff, and the question was why not? So, don't let me. About ten minutes before we're out of time. Let's bring that up, because it's pertinent to what we're in. I thought about that when I was studying yesterday, that that's exactly what that question is. Because people are saying, why can't I do this? Well, what, what does God care if I go down in, in my little, uh, make a little place and I burn incense and I you know, silence my mind or whatever it is that they want to do? Why can't I do that? And I want to talk about why not. Okay, And why not comes right out of Genesis 3. But the serpent is crafty. The serpent deceives. I have to quit getting more commentaries, or I'm never going to be prepared anymore. <laughs> I found another one yesterday that was so good. <laughs> I, I start reading in these things, and I think, "Oh, yeah, this one's good, and this one's good." And what a, you know, in a way, isn't that a blessing, though, that we have the English in the English language? Tools. We have more tools right now in 2009 than any people in the history have had at their fingertips. And what a shame that in a lot of churches, there's no use for them because you're trying to figure out not what the text means, but how you can make people entertained this Sunday. That's a shame. I love these tools, though, I'll tell you. If you get hungry for the truth, it's really good. Yeah, I was going to quote Barnett. He fears that somehow their minds should be corrupted away from a single-minded, pure, and pure focus toward Christ. Implicit here is the possibility that the purity of the Corinthians is capable of being sullied. The metaphor from verse 2 that betrothal is for the purity of the betrothed woman for her husband is now transmuted in the first half of the verse into the biblical story about the circumstances that overtook another woman, Eve, who had been deceived by the serpent, Genesis 3, 1-7. Under the symbolism of this allegory, Eve represents the church at Corinth and the serpent, those ministers of Satan, that comes up later in chapter 11, the superlative apostles, who verse 5 who have come preaching another Jesus to divert the Corinthians from the Christ to whom Paul had joined them so that's what's going on there's a deception a seduction now when they come with another Christ they don't tell you that's what they're doing the the, the false teachers with false gospels tell you that they believe in the same Christ that you do. And there's no evidence in the Corinthian correspondence that they actually came with some Jesus that was not even related to Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, as I was reading commentators yesterday, and as I was finishing this section, I was reading, expanding where I was reading, because I wasn't quite satisfied with the answers I was getting. One of them said this that probably what was going on, if you read between the lines, because they had the wisdom, the philosophy, the Sophia, the rhetoric, the looks, the signs and wonders, the super apostle. So they probably had a Jesus that was disconnected from the cross. Because remember in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, as you can see him debating, even though the other side isn't there, we don't see what the other side is actually saying. He says, I did not come to you with cleverness of speech or with wisdom. But I came to you with the message of the cross. All right? So another Jesus isn't necessarily a Jesus disconnected from the Gospels altogether, but it's a Jesus minus the cross, minus redemption and atonement, minus the wrath of God against sin that he pays the price for. You just take that component out. Just take that out. They keep everything else. I read Brian McLaren's book, The Secret Message of Jesus, as part of my research. And I read that entire book, underlined, took notes, and I'm telling you that Brian McLaren's preaching a different Jesus. But he's doing it right out of the red letters. Now, how does he do it? By the means that I just said. He has the social Jesus, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the Jesus who helps the poor, all of which are factual within certain of the red letters, but not a Jesus who preaches hell and not a Jesus who provided a blood atonement to avert God's wrath against anybody's sin. That, he said, he laid aside a long time ago. Now, I grew up in a church that had a different Jesus. It was a liberal United Methodist church. And they had a Jesus who would never send anybody to hell. And they said so. Now, why would their Jesus never send anybody to hell? Because the Jesus that they believed in never said anything about hell? Well, no. Because in their minds, that whole idea was distasteful. It wasn't sentimental. It wasn't what we would like to hear. It's not what modern people are going to believe. Yeah, it just didn't have what they were looking for. And so you delete that part of it. So, dear ones, please listen. The seducing spirits that would give you a different spirit, a different Jesus, and a different gospel are not going to come to you in the form of an atheist who says there is no God. They're not going to come to you in the form of somebody who says you can't believe anything the Bible says. They're going to come to you in the form of some of the Bible Deleting some of the other parts of it. Yes.
2: If, there, if there's is teaching that everyone goes to heaven, then there was no need for the Lord to come in the first place.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, that makes sense to us. Thank you. <laughs> That's true. So what does that tell us? How important is it that we get it right? Well, remember back, we're, we're talking about the analogy from Genesis 3. Eve wasn't that far off. Okay? She got the name of God different and added something. But she wasn't that far off, but she wasn't right on. But she's far enough off to go into a trajectory that leads right to sin in a lost condition and plunge the whole human race into sin and death. So, (laughs) I remember when we started a pastor's meeting in the late 80s, and I... I wanted an audience for, for some papers I was writing. And so I'd do all this careful theological work and scripture analysis and do this kind of stuff that ended up being CIC. And this one pastor said, well, why are you so picky? <laughs> That's direct quote. Why are you so picky? Can't you just, you know, loosen up a little? It doesn't have to be just right. No. What kind of an attitude is that? If God speaks, does it really not matter if we understand what he said? There's something seriously amiss if you think that way. Yes. I was just thinking of a farming analogy on being a little bit off. If you're plowing a field and you don't focus on one point at the end of uh, your row, uh, you can start out being half an inch off at one end and be a quarter of a mile off on the other end. Yeah, the tra- trajectory works that way. I heard a story about a farmer that you know you make your first after you get your furrow, then you just follow the first one. But the first one's important, okay? Because I grew up on a farm, and so you'd pick something that you could see at the end of the field and keep your eye on it and keep going right at it. That was now you know what they have now? They have GPS in their tractor. <laughs> Nothing is sacred anymore. <laughs> just plug it in and the tractor goes straight. Hey, even I could get a straight row that way. But, <laughs> well, here's a story. Farmer farmer did that. He picked out a spot, and he was following it, making his first furrow. He got closer. He looked back, and he was going all over the place. It was a cow. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want a moving target. <laughs> He's going like this. All right. We're going to go straight, straight. So the the surfboard, oh, yes, did you?
3: Uh, you know, since what you've been explaining is there's a lot of disconnects along the way for emergence, for those that don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, for those that uh, don't believe that God can know the future. And if you have an orthodox or correct understanding of what Scripture says and all the doctrines, there will be some doubts that you will not be able to connect on some of these misdoctrines because you won't be able to connect up with anything else if, you know, button up. The shirt with the wrong button is wrong all the way down, yeah. so to speak.
0: Huh. Amen. Uh, Barnett says this, But Paul insists this was not a message created by him. Rather, it was received by him from those who stood between him and historical Jesus, 1 Corinthians fifteen three. Plus, we know he got it directly from God. Moreover, it was the message of the apostles, not just Paul. Writing of... Of the apostles collectively, declares, "So we preach, so you believe." One Corinthians fifteen eleven. In other words, the Christ to whose minds Paul kept directing the Corinthians was not a Pauline Christ, but the Apostolic Christ. Remember my, that article I published on this. It is from this Christ that the Corinthians are in danger of being diverted. So, the doctrine of Christ is absolutely essential. And it's essential that we know everything the Bible says about Christ. Now, Dick and I are teaching through Hebrews on the radio, and isn't it amazing how detailed, as we're digging into this, and, and it's a lot of work because we're going deep into it. We're, this is not the cliff Notes version of Hebrews. And as we're getting into it, the technical language that's being used, the analogies from Scripture in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews is absolutely bent on them understanding the true doctrine of Christ. That he's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. That he's the priest after the order of Melchizedek. That he's the high priest. That he's the one spoken of in Psalm 2 and verse 2. And he's the one spoken of in Psalm 110 and verse 1. And he's the one that preexisted. And he's the one who came and who spoke God's words and to whom we must listen. And if we don't pay attention, he uses the nautical terminology in in chapter 2, we'll drift away. And that word uh, uh, that it warns about in the Greek means either to keep on course or to be anchored. So that you stay on the course, and and if you don't do that, what happens is you cut the anchor rope and you're not steering a ship, the winds will determine where you go. And the winds will take you onto the rock and shipwreck you. The spirits out there will direct you, and you know, it's not being directed at all. So, very important material. I see another quote here I have for you. Garland, Paul expresses his fear that the Corinthians may have already been unfaithful, ravished by theological libertines. He draws on the account of the cunning surface deception of Eve, which had developed in sub segments of Jewish tradition as sexual seduction. The verb to be led astray frequently applies to moral ruin or corruption. But Paul has in mind a spiritual debauchery. As the serpent ensnared Eve with guyful arguments, so his smooth-talking rivals have snaked their way into the Corinthians' affection, captured their minds with a more alluring gospel, but a deadly one since it is no Gospel. And how many Gospels are vying for our attention today? If you just turn on the TV. I got a call from a guy who saw the video on an SO4J. I don't know where he's from, but he says, all the churches that I've been in and around are preaching the health and wealth Gospel. And he said, that's that's not the right Gospel. I want to hear the true Gospel. I'm not even sure where to go. I hear that so often. I don't know where to go. We can't play around with the terms of the gospel. They've been determined by God. It isn't any more negotiable, the terms of the gospel, than it was the first law, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't change it. It's not ours to change. That's why when Luther stood up to the entire church, he said, it's not mine. I can't change it. It's God's truth. So I'm going to stand on it. So there are seducing spirits. Let's read verse 4. Oh, wait, hey, oh, cross-references. Let me give just a few. Alice, could you do Acts 20, 30, and 31? And Troy, Galatians 1, 6. Joanne, Galatians 2, 4. Dick, Galatians 3, 1. Patrick, Ephesians four 14. We'll start with that. The first one was Acts 20, Acts 20 30, and 31.
3: And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after
0: them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish admonish each one with tears. Yeah, so this was um, a prediction by Paul to the Ephesian elders that from their own midst would arise false teachers that would try to draw people away from the gospel that Paul preached to them. This this process of spiritual seduction is relentless and it never stops. It will not stop until Christ comes and vanquishes all of his enemies. It never, ever, ever stops. From the time of Paul first preached, or the Peter first preached, I should say, on Pentecost to this very day, the winds of spiritual seduction are blowing. There's still Satan is still the God of this world. He still blinds minds. And if he can't stop you from believing the gospel, he'll start trying to pervert the terms of it for, with a different Jesus.
1: Isn't that spiritual seduction? Didn't it occur before Pentecost? Because I'm thinking of all of the people who praised and loved Jesus at the uh, entry into Jerusalem. And then six days yeah. later, they didn't care one whit about oh, Jesus dying.
0: That's true. It's, so, it's, there, it it's been there since the garden, but the reason I've mentioned Pentecost as far as the church's battles is concerned. That's when it began. That's when the church was born. Okay, Galatians
2: 1.6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who
3: called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel.
0: All right, so the Galatians went for a different gospel quickly. Quickly. They didn't last too long in the true one. Galatians 2.4.
2: But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage.
0: Yeah, so they came in to spy out our liberty, as Paul said. This was the legalists. Galatians 3, verse 1.
3: You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified?
0: Did I ever give you a verse, Larry? Oh, he, did, he distracted me. <laughs> you yeah, you got pass. Ephesians
1: 4.14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming.
0: Satan is the deceiver, but he uses men. Okay, Colossians
3: 2.18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. For such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions.
0: Yep. This is similar to in Corinth where they had visions and spiritual experiences. Yes. Uh, what can you say about, there's a the verse in, the, in Galatians where it's talking about the false brethren. I mean, you can see someone like Brian McLaren and those guys being false brethren. Yeah, the, the people that to see the church arise from the church. And some of these people that I've been researching grew up in evangelical churches and hated it. Okay? They just, whatever was going on, they didn't like. And I'm not even saying that maybe some of what was going on was not that good. But the fact is, they've set out to create their own religion because they don't like the the Christian one as it is defined in the Bible. Yeah. No, a wolf in wolf's clothing
2: isn't so seductive.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a wolf in wolf's clothing. <laughs> one of the one of those one guy I debated was, has gotten more radical since I debated him, and I told somebody the zipper on his sheep suit is showing. <laughs> Okay, good Yeah,
1: I I had um, one of my clients yesterday at work tell me that uh, we found two pennies on the floor so that she could pay all of her bill, you know, and I found both of them. So she told me that pennies are angels. But what I'm thinking now is it almost sounds like the idolatry of the Catholic Church. I almost distrust references to angels even though it's in the bible i just i distrust my own knowledge of that
0: yeah uh, people have are fascinated by angels and they have they buy them they hang them in their windows and they they have all this angel stuff and it's just it's just uh foolishness right you know what i have a couple more verses jen could you look look up 2 timothy four three and four It's amazing how many verses there are on this topic of spiritual seduction. And I have, I'm just hardly scratching the surface. We could, be, we could spend a whole Sunday school class just look up cross-reference. There's so many. Yes?
2: I've been thinking for a long time about how it talks about the, the gospel as foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. Yes. And I think that the gospel isn't very palatable to most people. And the, these churches, you know, maybe they're trying to make it more palatable. When you think about telling people, just a regular person, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he shed his blood, he needed to shed his blood. I mean, people just don't yeah. want to understand that. It's just too
1: hard for them to accept.
0: Yeah, That's exactly right. Absolutely. And so that's, that's the Achilles heel of the seeker movement, in my opinion, because the basic premise is that you need to have a message that people want to hear as they are in their unconverted state. And you never ever will end up with the gospel that way. You, you never will. And we've said this a number of times, and you make a good point. If you went around, let's just, they actually want you to go do a demographic survey of the neighborhood and find out what people are wanting. And you ask questions like, if you were going to go to church, what would you want it to be like? Okay? And so you go and you ask this one and this one and this one and this one, and you survey all the results, and then when you get it all in, you say, okay, how can we create that? And then go back to the same group and say, we've got what you're looking for. Now, how many times are people in the community, just run of the mill, whoever they may be, whatever religion or non-religion, how many times if you go to them and ask them what they want in church, are they going to say, I want to hear that, Jesus Christ shed his blood to avert God's wrath against my sin. Nobody unless you happen upon a true Christian. Okay, if, if we came and asked one of you, you probably would say that. You'd say, I want to hear the gospel preached in its pristine quality. That's what I want in church. But, in, but all the non-Christians are going to answer differently and... And she's right, it's it's not going to be it's foolishness. And so we have to preach what God said, not what people want to hear.
2: And if you're going to do demographics on the unsaved, you can go to Dr. Jekyll and he wants a very respectable church and Mr. Hyde who wants a very lascivious church. But either way you're going to get a church that doesn't preach the gospel.
0: I know. No use trying to go out and be friends with the world. It just doesn't work because friendship with the world is hostility to God. Okay, now, Jen, you had a verse. And then, oh, i got another one. a uh, Barb, could you look up Romans 16, 17, 18, and 20? 17, 18, 20. Okay. Uh, two,
1: 2 Timothy 4, 3, and 4, right? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths.
0: Okay, that's what we were just talking about. They'll they'll bring teachers to suit their own desires. Okay, I, if I have a desire for wealth, I'll hire a wealth preaching pastor. If I have a desire for mystical experiences, I'll hire a mystical pastor. If I have a desire to solve problems, I'll hire a Robert Schuller type of pastor or a Joel Osteen or whatever. Okay, go ahead and read it, and then we'll go over here because we don't to talk. We're going to start our discussion anyhow. The the Romans 16 is interesting because he uses the crushing under your foot, and and it reminds us of the serpent. Go ahead.
2: I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. And then hopping to verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet.
0: Yeah, the God of peace will soon crush. So the false teachers are coming, and they're the ones that are doing the role of the serpent. And they come with smooth words. What did the serpent say to Eve? Well, he had a positive message. You're not going to die, you don't have to have this restriction. God is trying to keep something good away from you. Smooth talk. But remember the serpent, how you kill a serpent, you crush it head that comes from genesis and so paul brings that back up patrick so
1: that verse in second timothy that says they'll gather for themselves yeah so is that a step beyond being seduced it's like we've already been seduced now we know what we want we want these false teachers like i'm thinking suppose benny hinn to take a real obvious example retired from the ministry today yeah that church that benny hinn pastors would go find somebody that's going to promise some like that.
0: Yeah, the the audience in that case would be people whose appetites determine what they want to hear preached. Okay. In fact, we could almost make that a universal. Our appetites will determine what we're willing to listen to. Which we go to? Yeah, which banquet we go to, the mishnah, <laughs> right? So if our appetites are wrong, then we need to be converted. Yes. Um, and the, the alternatives are this. God has spoken. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God spoke. The only thing we can know about the reality of the spiritual world and God himself and our salvation is from what God said. There's no other source. No other source is even close to reliable. The only thing we have is God's word, what he said. If we have no appetite for that, we'll heap unto ourselves teachers to, to fulfill our itching of the ears. Okay, now I want to have that discussion. Okay, one more, and then let's get started. I want to ask that answer the question because it was a really good one. You all helped me answer it. I think the key to this whole thing is that believers need to gain discernment, and how do they do that? But reading the Word. Um, you can't, you know, you can't dialogue with Satan or his children. Uh, you just need to, you know, be like Jesus and proclaim the truth. When he dealt with Satan, he didn't dialogue. He just <laughs> proclaimed the truth. Yeah. Okay. Hebrews 5 discusses that. We We won't be able to discern between good and evil if we just want a simple version of Christianity. Okay. Repeat the question that you and Casey were asking me about Thursday night. Sure. So there's a lot of people we run into who
1: maybe aren't into the very extreme kind of emergent things of doing all kinds of different mystical things but here and there want to pick some mystical practices. Maybe they they want to, uh, light a candle and think and just kind of focus and, you know, do that kind of prayer with the candle deal or anything like that. And then we say, well, you shouldn't do that. And they say, well, how, how can you tell me that? The Bible doesn't say I, that's forbidden. So it's neither commanded nor forbidden that I'm free to do it. Uh, what's wrong with that attitude? Okay. And how is that related to deceiving
0: spirits? Okay. And it wouldn't just be the candle, it would be the solitude, right, things like solitude.
1: Yeah, any practice like that. They'll pick one practice. Yeah,
0: whatever it might be, whether it's the prayer labyrinth or the... Right, exactly. It the, could be anything like that. Okay, or the solitude or the, you know, go out in the wilderness. And, and I'll tell you the answer that I gave, and then they wanted me to write this succinctly because I've dealt with this in a whole bunch of articles, but they're asking for something really succinct. Let's start with the basic question. Does it matter how we come to God? Yes or no? Yes, it does. Has God given us instructions on how we come to God? Yes, He has. Is something, uh, some other way to God valid? No. Okay, now, what about practices? Are practices neutral? Let's put it this way. Are practices that purport... To make us closer to god neutral okay no and i think you can, burning
2: candles or walking through labyrinth because you like to have fun see if you can get out of a maze or not isn't the issue any one of these things well, it's nice to go out in the woods and sit in a little field and see what's going on just because it makes you feel good that's okay as long as i don't equate the feeling good with god so the 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 key concept is is this means drawing me closer to god Right, not that there's a yeah. means in general.
0: Yeah, yeah. So okay, so here then let's fine-tune the question. Can I do practices that aren't specifically forbidden in the Bible, but aren't taught in the Bible either, in order to draw closer to God? That's what we're saying. My answer is no. And then the next question, the follow-up question, is why? I would even
2: say that if you take a path looking for God, using means that he hasn't proclaimed, you may find your God with a little g and end up spending eternity with him someplace you don't want to.
0: Yeah. Now, here's the naivete of the 21st century. The naivete is this. If an experience feels good, makes me feel closer to God, and makes me happy or contented or less stressed or whatever, then that experience must be from God. That's the naivety. Or if I have some such experience in the context of a church, then it must be from God. Let me tell you a little dialogue I had that kind of didn't go very far, but it started. I got an email from Kimball, one of the emergent guys. Nice, Nice fellow. He thanked me for having given him credit for believing in the blood atonement. He's one of the very few emergents that actually believed in the blood atonement, so I give him credit for that much. But then I said to him, well, what are these prayer librings Why are you promoting this? And he said, well, the only one I ever went in when I got to the middle there was a Bible there. And it was just about the Bible. And I said, okay, but doesn't that not imply that the Bible has a different meaning when you find it in the middle of a prayer labyrinth than it would have if you were sitting in your car reading it. Does it why, why do you need the labyrinth to read the Bible? I think there's an implied religious claim there that this is going to make you closer to God. Okay? And so that's why I would still say no to it. Now, the fact is, and we're going to see this next week, There are different Jesuses, different Gospels, and different spirits. And your religious inclinations and affections and feelings are not adequate to tell which one is which. You cannot tell the real Jesus from a false Jesus based on how He makes you feel. That is... I'm absolutely certain about that. Now, just think about it. These spirits are called seducing spirits. People give heed to seducing spirits. Now, how would a spirit seduce somebody? By giving them panic attacks at night? No. By appearing to them like some horrible... Scary, wicked thing that's going to try to kill them like in the horror movie? No, that's not how you seduce somebody. You seduce somebody by showing up in a very appealing manner. Now, we can't see spirits. We cannot. They're invisible. We can't see them. But we know the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the seducing spirit gives you the experience that the Satan knows will make you think it's God. It'll be warm, it'll be appealing, it'll be religious, it might even feel like love, it might feel like peace that you haven't had before. And the person reasons, Jesus said that He'd give us peace, and I feel peace when I go and I meditate in front of the candle. So there must be Jesus. Now, we're not forbidding candles... We're just forbidding the idea that if you pray in front of a candle, you're going to get closer to God than if you prayed in, out there when it's 20 below. There's some less appealing place. Prayer, how, do, how, do, how is it that our prayers get to God and how is it that they're answered? Is it where we pray? Is it what kind of a music's playing in the background? No. It's, the only way we know our prayers get to God is, is that we know Jesus Christ through the true gospel and He is our high priest in heaven who mediates between us and God and that we have access to the throne of grace because His blood was shed once for all. It says that in Hebrews. So that's why we're doing Hebrews again. It's the most important book because it's the book that warns against apostasy and it's one we need to know today. We need to know what it says. The blood was shed once for all. Okay? So how do I know I got the th- this is the throne of grace that I'm going before? Because I'm coming on the terms that are laid out in the Bible. Do you think the New Covenant is less important than the Old Covenant? No. Now, have you read the terms of the Old Covenant? The terms about how they had to do things? How the tabernacle had to be constructed? How the priest had to conduct himself? How the sacrifices had to be made? How the Day of Atonement had to be conducted? And all of the things that are specified... And what happened if they decided to do it their own way? They died. Could you bring the mic to Jackie? And so, by, and this, this is exactly the argument the book of Hebrews makes. So, the book of Hebrews toward the end says, You didn't, you come to a mountain that's more awesome than that. When they came to Sinai and they touched it, they'd die. It was quaking and smoke and fire and a theophany, and God came. And it was threatening. And they said, okay, Moses, you better go talk to God. He's going to kill us. The author of Hebrews says what we've come to is more awesome. How much more do we need to come according to the terms of the covenant? If we we're going to come our own way, we're in danger. Uh, Jackie.
2: I was thinking, you know, your Bible is your your roadmap to walking with God. Yes. And if there were other routes to him then that'd be in here because that'd be important. And the fact that there aren't any other routes defined means that they aren't valid.
0: Right. And, and here's another thing, and I have trouble getting people that don't agree with what we're saying here to accept this. But the Bible has a term for all those other ways uh, to God, whatever they may be, irrespective of their details, and it's called divination. Okay. When you, you can say it's the true God you're trying to approach, but if you do it your way to try to get something, you're going into divination. I had a guy write me a nasty email saying, why are you so angry with Ed Smith? He's a nice guy. I just met him. I said, I'm not angry. That's an ad hominem argument. I just don't believe that we ought to be practicing divination. Theophastic ministry is divination. And they just think, well, no, you're saying that word just for this inflammatory value. No, I'm not making this up. going into an altered state of consciousness or whatever you've got to do to hear this thing and asking the Spirit of Jesus to come and give you specialized secret information concerning the meaning of your first memory event, is going into the spirit world asking for knowledge that God hasn't chosen to reveal by a technique that God hasn't ordained. That's divination. You can change the definition, but you don't change the reality of it. It's divination. And divination, according to Deuteronomy, is an abomination to the Lord. But on the other, oh, we're running out of time. But on the, on the other hand, dear ones, I'm going to talk about dishonoring God because of the banquet. Talks about that in the sermon, dear ones. Jesus, our high priest at the right hand of God, paid the full price. He shed his blood. He sent it into heaven, and he said, "Come to my throne of grace to find grace to help in time of need." Okay, and we and if we say, "I'm now willing to do that because I would rather go use some practice that's not in the Bible because it works better," that is a slap in the face to our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's wicked. And we need to not do that. The throne of grace, there's no better place to go. I'd say go there. You can go there every day, all day, anytime you need. You can be driving your car, you can be sitting at work, and the throne of grace is there because the way has been made into the holy place because Jesus is there. He went in as the high priest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it saddens us to see people that we love being seduced, just like the Corinthian church and the Galatian church and the Colossian church and the Ephesian church, according to Paul. And so we know that whenever you establish a church through the gospel, the winds of doctrine and the craftiness of the serpent immediately launch a counterattack to seduce us away from what you want. Lord, help us to get our anchor firmly planted so that we're not blown by the winds. And may your word rest heavily upon us, not lightly, but heavily, so that we understand who you are, what you said, and how we come to you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.